Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. Today, we'll be interviewing the lead editor of Guilds of Ravnica, Nat Mose. That was me. So, Nat, you haven't been on the show for a while. Would you care to tell us where you've been? Yeah. In October of 2016, I accepted a job with Wizards of the Coast as an editor and have been there for the last almost two years. I left the job in the last week of September of this year. So I was there for almost two years. Got to work on a lot of fun stuff and was honored to be the lead editor of Guilds of Ravnica. When they hired you, were they aware of your affinity for Belcher? I think so. So they've been hiring uh, a replacement for me as well as uh, another editorial position there. Before I left, I was sort of watching this process. And it's it's definitely a competitive field, and they look into a lot of aspects of your career and if you're a magic player aficionado like they'll look into that too so i expect that they probably looked into my articles and podcasts and you know whatever else so what you're saying is they may have listened to this podcast they may have listened to this podcast i don't know and they still hired you do you think that helped you or hurt you i mean they hired you we put out a quality product all right yeah fair so because we have this rare opportunity with the lead editor of Guilds of Ravnica, now all to ourselves because he has been released from Wizards, we decided to jump on this opportunity and take some questions from Twitter and some other online outlets and just sort of see what people were curious about the process about Guilds of Ravnica itself. Just have a chat through that and get some information from behind the curtain. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was great. I think Nat got a lot of feedback on Twitter, so I think that that's really helpful. I think a good place to start, Steve had a question about the process, and we kind of had a pre-conversation the other day to talk about, you know, hey, do we want to do this? Let's, what are we going to talk about? And I had the same question of, it seems very daunting to me to say, okay, uh, let's build a new magic set. So it's like, there's got to be a process. There's got to be people that are involved in the process. So I'm curious to hear about that. Right. I think actually I would direct you to an article by Mark Rosewater. Uh, it's from 2015, but I think it's still pretty relevant. It's nuts and bolts, the three stages of design. And he sort of talks about the development of the vision design process and then development and then play design. So in vision design, that's where the background idea of the set comes together where they're looking at like creatively what's supposed to be happening in the storyline what mechanics are there that will support that and then development sort of takes what comes out of that and turns it into the first draft of playable magic cards really and then that goes through many iterations where ideas might be scrapped or restarted and then actual play design comes in and takes what development put out and turns that or tunes that rather into a set that's you know, draftable and ready for constructed play and has good looking magic cards in it that seem like magic cards. Are there multiple teams that are working in parallel on that on different sets or is it sequential where they're... It's very much in parallel. So usually there's, um, 
yeah, I mean, there there are several sets in, in one of these stages at a time. Like, I think we're looking at somewhere between four and six, depending on how, oh, wow. how things happen. And people will be on different phases for different sets at the same of time. Course. So you'll have people who are working on both vision and play design or something. And editing sort of steps in as necessary during development and can say, you know, this mechanic doesn't seem reasonable like from a rules perspective or from a play perspective, like we we just can't expect players to get this, that sort of thing. And then editors become more involved during play design as we're looking at cards that are coming closer and closer to being finished actual magic text on a card. The editors are making sure that it's templated correctly and will be correct when you read it on your actual physical cardboard or on Mitgo or Arena. So are you guys coming up with cards and text and like writing them on uh, like notebook cards and then playing them and then making changes or like? Do you have a process to create fake cards and then play them before you actually get output? There's a playtest card printer. I mean, you've probably seen playtest stickered cards. Yeah. Just a sticker over a magic card. Now there's an actual printer that will print out things that resemble magic cards on actual magic cards rather than using stickers. What happens to those when you guys are done with them? They get put in a shredder and taken away from the building. (laughs) (laughs) those don't leave the floor usually so how's security it's good security's good i would imagine it would have to be. yeah i never tested security so i don't i don't know (laughs) somebody pointed out like you know why i don't mess with any of this it's because i would lose my job (laughs) it's like yeah pretty much how it is i just why why bother but anyway, so as as things come to towards the end of design, the creative team has been working with flavor text authors and with artists. The creative team will write art descriptions that sort of sum up what's going on on the card. And there's art available that'll go to flavor text authors and they will write flavor text as appropriate. At the end of play design, everything sort of gets combined. So you have reasonably templated actual words on a card and reasonably well-written flavor text and names, actual names that goes to the editor and the editor goes through and finalizes everything and then works closely with the lead designer and the creative lead to make sure that everything comes out as we want it to look in print. You mentioned earlier that editing may step in along the way to basically point out that something wouldn't work with the rules. Is that a matter of being fundamentally inconsistent with the existing magic rule book? Or is that just, is that we can't actually put this on a card and not make it look like Ice Cauldron or? Yes, both. Gotcha. I, I mean, so editing is part of what's called in R&D the Delta team, which is sort of like a mishmash of people who aren't in R&D design or the creative team. So that also includes uh, Eli Schifrin, the rules manager. So editing and the rules manager will look at cards and basically just ask questions like, are you sure this is what you want this card to do? Or, hey, this card is, um, I don't know, going to be difficult to implement online. Can we change it? Or like, do you want to have it be so it only targets your own creatures so that you don't misclick and accidentally give your opponent's creature plus one plus one or whatever? Those sorts of questions where it's just like, are you sure you want to do this? Click yes, no. <laughs> That's just sort of the sort of um, checking that goes on. How long does the entire process take from the vision quest to the finalized set? It depends. Uh, months. Let's see. I think things are like a year and a half overall. Maybe more than that. They wow. sort of begin, like vision design isn't necessarily visible to the editors, really. Right. There's not enough form there to talk about yet for us. Things might come up, but we're not usually in depth on that part. 
Was there anything in the process that surprised you? You know, I guess you have a general idea of like, if I had to run this project, here's how it would go. Is there anything that you're like, oh, I didn't think of that. That's a good idea. Um, the thing that surprised and delighted me most was just that everyone that I worked with from my team to the rest of R&D to people who are in the like the actual production side, like the people who work on the card images, like the art, like putting that together into the frame and then the typesetters and like everyone involved in the entire process seems above competent and very enthusiastic. It's just a real, it's, it's very, um, atypical workplace. Yes. Yeah. This sounds <laughs> like the opposite of my job. Right. Same. It's just a, it's a pleasure to work with everyone there because like everyone knows what they're doing and like wants to be helpful. And like you get a lot of good feedback from a lot of different people and a lot of help along the way from anything that happens. So hmm, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's good to hear. If you want to run a good project, just hire only the best people. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, good luck. How that works. <laughs> so to pivot here from uh, the sort of broad overall question and go to a little, some more pointed questions. This one comes from Kyle Carson on Twitter. If you had to add one Magic the Gathering Guilds of Ravnica card to the 75 of each major archetype and vintage, what would it be? I like this question. I think it's very pointed and also leads to vintage players, magic players in general should be more excited about more cards. But anyway, <laughs> so I was thinking about this and one of the more interesting ones is shops because Guilds of Ravnica being inherently a two color set is very colorful. So like all of the artifacts refer to multicolor cards or require a bunch of different colors of mana mm. you know current shops list just aren't about that they're mono brown for the most part yeah so like the only card that actually works for shops is silent dart but it's not a very exciting card i don't think i would actually add it to the current shops deck but you could play chromatic lantern and in fact chromatic lantern is a reprint and has been played before in five color stacks lists so i think let's get five color stacks back that seems reasonable yeah and if you get five color stacks, you could also do the chamber sentry, which enters the battlefield with a plus one, plus one counter on it for each color of mana spent to cast it. So let's just ramp that up. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. The other archetypes I decided were going to be Jeskai, Paradoxical Outcome, Dredge, and Oath. And if you guys have anything to argue about those, we can certainly talk about it. <laughs> I really don't. I was just about to say, like, this is not the best forum at this moment right. for discussing what are the five archetypes of vintage. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Dredge is obviously an archetype, and Narcomoeba got reprinted, so that's great. But to me, Creeping Kill seems interesting. I don't know if it's going to be any good, but it seems like some old-school Jeff Moe's grindy attack with creatures, you oh, know, man. knock your I opponent had... down. You mean, like... The ones that don't work anymore? Well, probably, but I mean, like... We're in a world where five-color stacks is good. This fake magic world that we're in, anything's possible, so... Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. You have some sort of, I would think, high-disruption deck, mm -hmm. right, on masks and ball therapies, obviously, and then, you know, creatures that come back, so you can just ping in for damage just and then away. just chip away. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I'm curious to see if anyone will make that work. It's not going to be me, but... Yeah, <laughs> I'm interested to see uh, if anyone makes that work because I think Creeping Chill is a cool card, but the effect feels too small for me. Like, you kind of have to build all the way around it, and it you get all four exiled, and they do 12 damage, which doesn't quite do it. I mean, you could have made that five damage. That would be way better. Yeah, I should have changed that. But 
Anyway, I do like <laughs> Lotleth Giant, which comes into play and then deals damage to all of your opponents equal to the number of creatures in your graveyard. So if you dread return that and have a dredge deck, like you're probably doing, you know, twelve or you know, twenty all at once. Mm-hmm. If you've already done nine damage with your three creepy right. chills, I mean you're already ahead, right? right. Perfect. I was talking to a, a dredge player, Calvin Nelson, last week and he was complaining they kept losing games to moat. Lot left giant will fix that. You will not lose to moat. That's a good point. Yeah. I think Paradoxical Outcome and Jeskai could both just be Mission Briefing, which is like the non-creature Snapcaster Mage, but it also surveils too, so you get to look at the top two cards of your library and put them into your graveyard. So if you don't have a card that you want to cast in your graveyard, you might get one by just casting this. That's kind of exciting. I think also in Jeskai, I know that Andy Probasco was excited about Ral is it Viceroy as an option. Andy is always excited about the worst options. So. He likes big planeswalkers that do big things, and I think Ral is a good one. Like he's he's big and does big things. I know that I played Murmuring Mystic a lot in my drafts because I tended to draft is it in playtesting. I don't think that's actually realistic, but it did remind me of, you know, Monastery Mentor or um, Young Pyromancer. So yeah. That's kind of cool. As far as Oath goes, I'm really excited to Oath into Niv-Mizzet Pyron because Niv-Mizzet's uh, abilities are really exciting and he's a giant dragon who loves spells. Plus, I mean, just like other good Oath creatures, he's easy to hardcast if you get that much mana. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I know you're kidding, but I mean, he's technically easier to cast than Grizzlebrand. So it's only six, right? <laughs> yes, he's only six. He costs only six. Just that's where we're going to end it. He only costs six. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, I definitely have already purchased a Niv Mizzet, and I'm ready to rock. Of course. <laughs> I noticed that it was missing here as an archetype, and in parentheses, we can add whatever archetype we want. So I would add Bug as an yeah. archetype. Oh, Assassin's Trophy is a huge card for Bug. It fills like a massive hole of destroy whatever permanent you want in those colors at instant speed. So I think that that's an obvious inclusion. One thing that I, I wish that it was destroy target permanent, period. It's controller may search their <laughs> library, et cetera. But, you know, I play this game for those fringe cases where I need to destroy something that I have to get a land or I need to shuffle my library for two mana. Oh, yeah. I, I know that the change to be in opponent controls was a fun one it definitely made it less powerful like i know in in playtesting i was casting it on my own stuff every once in a while so so that was a change made to reduce the the overall power level of the yeah card. it had it was a long time a long time before it got printed the next question we got was from john hammock about assassin's mm-hmm. trophy so uh, what mm-hmm. was the test name for assassin's trophy once the actual name was decided did anyone in r&d call it trophy a very great question oh yeah john's very insightful the playtest name was Guildmaster's demise i think melissa de toro was talking about it on the r&d stream a couple days ago as being Guildmaster's demise and since that card is a story spotlight there were creative needs that went along with it like creative the department they definitely wanted to associate it with Vraska as Vraska destroying the Sphinx Asperia, the leader of the Azorius Guild. So calling it Assassin's Trophy links it more closely to Vraska as her being the Gorgon assassin of Ravnica. And I think, you know, potentially giving it that more generic name doesn't necessarily associate it with Ravnica specifically. In this set, it's very much associated with Frasca, but outside this set, Assassin's Trophy is kind of general and could be used for any destroy target permanent. How often does that come up? 
the idea of we don't want this to be too specific to the lore in this set to make sure that if we want to slot this in later, it's generic enough that it can fit yeah. wherever. Uh, it comes up every once in a while, especially with anything that might get reprinted. Like, this is a good removal spell, obviously. Like, everyone's really excited about it. Yeah. Especially for things that, you know, you need repeatedly. Like, dual lands are a good one where you want any set of 10 lands that make two colors to be sort of printable outside a specific set. Anything that can be made more generic to be potentially a reprint, I think, is a positive for the set. The Shocklands have Ravnica names, don't they? Uh, the Shocklands are like Watery Grave, so that's not... Right? What is it, Boilerworks? Those are... Are those the Bounce Lands? Yeah, those are Bounce Lands. Oh, okay. So, yeah. less of a deal. Yeah, the Guild Gates are all obviously aligned with Ravnica, but mm -hmm. the Shocklands are like Sacred Foundry and Overgrown Tomb and right, Watery right. Grave. Those are all generic. Gotcha. Like, those could be printed anywhere, even though I think we've only ever printed them on Ravnica so far. Neat! Also coming from John Hammock, did you also edit flavor text? Did you get to have any influence on card names during the editing process? Yeah, like I said, that's part of the whole editing process. After the templated rules text and the creative text get merged together into one bundle, the editor goes through and has, I don't want to say control over all of it, but definitely influence over any of it. So I can potentially look at a card and say, you know, this name is lackluster or, hey, we've used a card name that's very similar to this somewhere else. I know actually we were running into that with some of the split cards in this set where it was, <laughs> there's Dispersal and Disperse is already a card. I think there's also Rouse Dispersal in this set. Rouse nice. Dispersal is in the Planeswalker deck. So it's like, did we want to change any of these? Are these going to be okay and confusing to people at any point? The split card makes it a little different where it's already attached to something else all the time. Rouse Dispersal is far enough away from actual Disperse that it's probably okay. That sort of thing where it's, you know, again, the editors are just asking questions to make sure that these are good directions to go. I uh, was thinking about it, like the one card name that I remember changing was Artisan Bats, which I don't actually remember what it was before, but it's kind of a forgettable 3-1 common flyer, but I was looking to see what would be a cool name for a bat that we hadn't used. So what's a Bartisan? So a Bartisan, if you look in the art of Bartisan Bats, the little turret thing that sticks off the side of that castle uh -huh. is a Bartisan. It's an architectural feature, so... Neat. Yeah. Do you think that these bats specifically seek out bartisans and they won't live in other places? I mean, I expect they live there, yeah. So was that the artwork of the card when you were looking at it? And then you came yeah. up with the ch name change after that? Yeah, this is all pretty late in the process where everything is starting to come together. You have art and text, like rules text and flavor text. And so this was definitely all together and I could see the art of the card to make that suggestion. Do you think if architectural styles and Ravnica change, all those bats are going to die out? Yeah, I mean, you know, whatever happens to the city, I think the bats are pretty reliant on that particular feature of a lot of the buildings. It's f***ed up. Yeah. You just, you never know. Save the Bartisans. Indeed. Build more Bartisans. Yeah. Question that I had in regards to flavor text, because I was going through and, and specifically looking at the flavor text, because we had, we had talked about it before the show, and I noticed that it really seemed like the flavor text of the set really falls into two categories, because you have 
the serious lore centric flavor text and then also essentially joke humor flavor text and i was wondering if that's something that sort of ratio is something that you consider as a whole when you're looking at the set like is this too serious or is this too cheesy so that's definitely something the creative team will look at primarily i mean like i can i as editor can be conscious of it and like they can say you know we're going for this effect or we're going for this sort of tone overall Doug Byer was the creative lead, and the overall theme of the set is sort of like this Cold War. All of the guilds are sort of in this tension right now, and you know, th there's not really a... Yeah, like, there's just a lot of tension, and you're sort of waiting for this spark to sort of set things off. That sort of emotion the creative team decided could be made a little bit lighter by having some more humorous flavor text, where it's the, that sort of dark humor in a lot in some cases, where it's you know just trying to lighten the mood a little bit as it were but also you know poke fun at the idea like hey we could all just die here like it, anything could happen <laughs> i like that approach yeah and that, that was yeah. something that doug consciously went for when putting in flavor text i do remember there was one that i pushed back on and i was like i don't know this is pretty goofy i don't remember what it was now i don't remember the card but i remember it got changed as being like that was the one that went over the line for what i think we were trying to do <laughs> but ultimately i reading through the flavor text now and and actually then it was a lot of fun like the humor in the set i think comes through at an appropriate level for me where it's like there's a lot of things that are funny what's your favorite one? Oh, that's a good segue into Porkchop Samus's question. There's a lot of them that I like. Wishcoin Crab is a favorite. I remember it came in as sort of much longer as a little paragraph and part of editing it was just like trying to distill it down into one joke. Uh, now it's just, what wishes do they grant? Mostly pinching related ones. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, like that sort of thing where it's just, we made that one a lot more pithy. My favorite flavor text in the set is actually one that I wrote, which there, there's not a ton of names or flavor text that I will take credit for, like all of it or anything. But like this Iron Shell Beetle has my flavor text on it. And it's, please don't feed the beetles. And then the attribution is promenade warning sign. The previous flavor text that had been there was something about how the crawl, the race of insect warriors on Ravnica, the crawl will kill these beetles and wear them as armor. And we have a lot of flavor text in magic where it's, you know, some creature kills this other creature and then wears it as armor. I was just like, can we do something different here? And suggested the current flavor texts. And Doug was like, yeah, that sounds fine. I like that text in particular because it also helps point out that the beetle itself is the size of the park bench that it's sitting on. And it brings back a reference to the promenade of the previous Ravnica card. So it's like, you know, you get a lot of things going on there that seem to work pretty well. I like that one. Another story I should tell is actually about Narcomoeba, which when the flavor text came in, it actually came in pretty much as is. Uh, and the flavor text is, what bait do you cast to catch a dream as a Ravnican riddle? I wasn't immediately sure, and one of the other editors queried whether you actually cast bait. Like normally you would think like uh, cast a hook or cast a line or whatever. And so I, t I talked to my dad and to my wife's uncle, both of whom are semi-avid fisherman and was like can you actually cast bait like i remember catching walleye on lake erie and i'm pretty sure we were casting bait like you'd put a worm on a hook and cast it out and they were like yeah i think that works like that's fine like, i didn't give them any information about the card it was just like is this actually a thing you can do i was really hoping that you asked them whether you could catch a dream the right if, you, if you throw a jellyfish out like do you get dreams back <laughs> 
Um, definitely yes, by the way. The answer is yes. Definitely. But I, I asked them and like I watched several different YouTube fishing videos to see if other people were casting bait. And it was like, you know, this is, this is part of my job is watching YouTube fishing videos for magic flavor text. So Paul had another question. I don't know if I want to ask it or not because it just seems like he's, he's reaching for information that he's not going to get here, but he wants, <laughs> wanted to know. <laughs> If you have any information on a white spirit guide or a null rod on a creature, I think I can probably answer this for you, but I'll let you do that. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, well, I can't say that would be outside of what I'm allowed to talk about. I will say that white spirit guide seems kind of out of the color pie. Again, this is me and not wizards employee me, but I would not expect another color of spirit guide. I mean, certainly white is the safest one. You mean we're not heading for Merfolk Spirit Guide anytime soon? I mean... Yeah, Mer Merfolk and Zombie Spirit Guide, those seem great. Well, I mean, Blue has Apprentice Wizards, so obviously it has Mana Acceleration within its mm -hmm, color pie. Mm -hmm. Benthic Explorers. Obviously. Yeah. What about Null Rod on a Dude? I mean, that seems reasonable. When this question came up, I thought... Isn't Nolrod already uh, on a dude? It's not. It's on an enchantment. Yeah. But... Yeah, that's interesting because when I read the question for the first time, I read it as like Nolrod on a dude. Like, is there a card that's going to prevent dudes from having activated abilities? Like, that exists, right? Yeah, that also exists. I actually, when I first read the question, thought that he was asking for Nolrod on a dude that was also a white spirit guide. Oh, man, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> Which. Sounds yeah. good. <laughs> Not gonna lie. For the moon. Fizzled asks, how hard is it to ensure that fixed points are fixed points in magic story slash flavor text? Uh, it's definitely story team and the creative team work pretty closely together. They used to be sort of one team. The story was written within the creative team. There's an attention paid to the story spotlights as being big moments in you know, whatever is going on. So big moments in the set, big moments in the actual story behind the set. I think starting in guilds, we didn't number those story spotlights. Normally they're numbered, you know, story spotlight one of six or one of five or whatever, one, two, three, four. And we didn't number them for this to not limit the writers on the story team so that they could put the events in any reasonable order that they wanted. So I guess I don't necessarily remember what all of the story spotlights are in guilds, but it just left it open as to, you know, man, it's really hard to find cards with story spotlight symbols in a set with a bunch of guild symbols, too. Um, <laughs> I actually did not realize that there was a story spotlight yeah, it's symbol. Yeah, it's this the Planeswalker is... symbol. So it's, you know, you could put Firemind's Research, that being Niv-Mizzet, researching what's ah. going on with his life before or after Assassin's yes. Trophy, Braska killing Asperia and leaving the Azorius Guild leaderless. So it's just th that sort of thing where it's... I guess some of them are implied because I think the third one is Guild Summit, which clearly shows Asperia leading this summit. So probably Guild Summit comes before Assassin's Trophy, but... I mean, maybe Asperia makes a really, really lifelike statue. Right. And they were just like, we can still have this here in spirit. Yeah, or maybe that statue makes a really, really compelling argument. <laughs> So, I mean, it's definitely a consideration to make sure that the story and the creative line up between those groups. As a side note, Fiddle wants to know who is your favorite homunculus. I mean, from Ravnica, it has to be Fibblethip, right? I was wondering how that was actually pronounced, so I'm impressed. Yeah, I think there's only two homunculi, a Fibblethip and Zindersplit from Battlebond. 
Ravnica has to be Fibble Fib. I think my actual favorite homunculus card is Curious Homunculus from one of the Innistrad sets. It's a flip card, and it potentially had applications in sort of a big mana, I don't know, control sort of deck where you're playing lots of instants and sorceries. So we got a couple questions from Andy Probasco here. Were there any cards they designed with Vintage in mind? No. Did you test any ERN cards and vintage decks in the Wizards of the Coast capacity? No, I didn't really. I mean, I would look through the set, look through a set, any set, and look for cards that I thought would have vintage interest. And like, there are a handful of them in every set. Like, obviously, vintage isn't completely ignored, and we get decent cards. I know I put a comment on like Goblin Crater Maker that destroys colorless things and deals two damage to creatures. Like that's a reasonable toolboxy sort of card for red aggro decks and vintage. But I would I would look at cards that I thought had vintage applications and would leave comments on them in our database and note that hey, this could get looked at in vintage. I think the one that got pointed out for Guilds of Ravnica was Lotleth Giant, which I mentioned before in relation to Dredge, where it comes into play and deals damage equal to the number of creatures in your graveyard. And I pointed out that like this is an upgraded win condition for oops all spells type decks in Vintage and Legacy, because instead of playing Dread Return and getting back Angel of Glory's Rise and using that to get back a zombie Lady of Scrolls and Laboratory Maniac, you could now just get back Lotleth Giant. So you're taking a three-card win condition and turning it into one card, so you're freeing up two spots. Adam Prosak is in R&D and was the writer of the original Oops All Spells article on Star City back in whenever that deck debuted in the last Ravnica set. So it was at 2000... Let's not think about how old we are. Yeah, well, that was like 2013 or something <laughs> like that. Anyway, it came out a while ago. Adam wrote the article. Like, he probably knows better than I do how much better this card would be than the three previous cards. So it was that sort of more, I guess, theory crafting where it's like, I can look at this card and say, I'm interested in this as a vintage player. I think other people probably will be too, or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I could point out that this could get played in vintage, but there didn't seem to be a ton of point in my actually testing cards for vintage because so many of them would change throughout the process. For that one off chance that something would happen in Vintage, it just didn't seem to be a big thing. And he continued, were there any changes in development for Vintage reasons? It sounds like probably not. Yeah. Because um, Lotless like, Giant made it through. <laughs> oh, right. And I, I mean, I didn't expect that one would necessarily change anyway. Sure. Like I know that Mausoleum Secrets, when that was like early on in design, uh, it used to be able to search for any card with casting cost less than the number of creature cards in your graveyard. Immediately, I was like, oh, I could go get Tolarian Academy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, obviously you could get Black Lotus, guess, yeah. but, like, Tolarian Academy seems like the actual better card to get in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. I know I pointed that out, but that card, Mausoleum Secrets, got rolled into a cycle of cards that they're all monocolored cards that reference that color. So Mausoleum Secrets now only gets black cards. I think it still is an interesting card. Like, maybe you could play a deck that, I mean, like, if you're playing, I don't know, Tinder Wall or something and can go get Dark Ritual or whatever, like, sure, maybe. That seems cool. I would do that. But it became much safer looking. Mm -hmm. I know Jerry Yang wanted to know about Coveted Jewel in C18, because I think I had mentioned that that card used to cost three or four. 
and I pointed out that <laughs> that would be really, really good in workshops. You could play it on turn one off a workshop or a workshop in a mox. I don't remember what it was. You could play it early in workshops, draw three cards, and then use the mana that Coveted Jewel makes to either play a lock piece or a creature to protect it. And then on your next turn, you would just untap with an absurd amount of mana. Gavin Verhey was the lead designer on C18. And he listened to my <laughs> my warning on that and was like, I think this is still going to be cool if we cost it more. And I was like, that sounds good. And he was like, yeah, we're interested in taking swings at Vintage every once in a while, but we really don't want to, like, we, we really don't want to rock the boat that far. It was essentially his... Seems his, fine. What could go wrong? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, that would have been a cool commander card, I guess. But it was like, that seems really, really good. In yeah. Vintage. So, I don't know, that was kind of a cool change. <laughs> Finally have an on-brand question for the podcast. Oh, are we getting into real serious vintage here? Yeah. What are the best lunch places near the Watsi office? Well, it's kind of funny because I packed my lunch most days because I'm both cheap and introverted. But they do have, well, R&D has a, a big practice of putting together lunch trains that like a, a big group of people will all go out to the same place. And there's a, a complex ritual of someone will suggest the place to go to and someone else will veto it but to veto you actually you have to suggest the next place so you can you can veto any number of times but you always have to have a new suggestion that hasn't been suggested before that's kind of interesting i rarely went out to lunch but um there were a few good places that i liked there was a a thai place called malacor that i thought had really good food elizabeth and i would go there for dinner every once in a while after she moved out that was that was pretty close by it was it was between the office and where i lived farther south in renton itself there was a a burrito place called el burrito loco they were some of the greasiest tastiest mexican food that i've had <laughs> that was a pretty good place to go every once in a while so we know what's around the watsi headquarters so what else yeah. is good in town? Well, I mean, the, you know, I'm looking at like all of Seattle. Is Seattle a big place? It doesn't feel that way. That's not the answer I expected. No, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it feels sort of sprawling in that it's kind of tall and narrow. So like Seattle is sort of squeezed between the mountains and Puget Sound. It seems to be sort of urban, like all the way from Tacoma to north of the city. You can go between various areas of the city very quickly. Like I, I lived in Kent, which is like a half hour south of the city and regularly had no trouble going into the city and would do that semi-frequently once or twice a week to have dinner or whatever. So what's good? When Josh and Jerry came to visit March of 2017, we went to Lakosho, which Elizabeth and I went to several times then afterwards. Uh, I really enjoyed that. They have sort of a upscale American creative fair that um, is also very locally sourced. They had, they had good food. Is that the place that the guy recommended to us while we were doing the impromptu distillery tour? Probably, because it's right up the hill from that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember that. That was pretty good. Yeah, that that was a Copperworks Distillery, by the way, which they had that gin that was 
aged in chai spiced cider barrels, which was just absurdly good. <laughs> yeah. Do you still have any of that? No, I drank it all. <laughs> all right. Yeah. yeah, it was good. Uh, also nearby Lakosho in Pike Place Market is the Crumpet Shop, which I am not a huge fan of Pike Place Market because crowds and stuff. And like, I don't know, it's just not my thing. But the crumpets there are really good. A crumpet is like an English muffin, only better. Yeah, we went there too. I had a crumpet that had some sort of maple flavoring on it. That was pretty good. I'll eat anything yeah. that has maple flavoring on it. Yeah, those, I mean, they have uh, savory crumpets as well. So you could get like, you know, crumpets with cheese and egg or whatever. They have a lemon curd crumpet that's really good. But I, I like that place. That's definitely a place I like taking people when they come to visit. Sort of along the dessert sort of snacky line, there's a place in North Seattle called Donut Factory that most of their lineup is cake donuts, which are my favorite kind of donut. On any given day, they will have a dozen versions of those of different flavors. So that was definitely a place that I would make excuses to go to. And <laughs> it became a lot easier when my friend Arnie moved up that way and was about eight minutes away from the donut shop or the donut factory. I've made a theory that Seattle has burger places similar to how Ohio has ice cream places. And so Ohio, like every little town will have one or two or, you know, five ice cream places where it's like, you can go there, you can get any number of cones, flavors of shakes, you know, whatever their version of the blizzard is. They're all just really good. Like you get a really good local ice cream place, whether it's soft serve or like hard packed. I'm pretty sure that Seattle does that with burger places. And I'm not sure why. The best burger that I had was at a place called Burger Express in Federal Way. I, I think their jalapeno burger is top notch. Not the, not the overall best burger that I've had. Dare we ask what the overall best burger you've had is? Uh, the place that made it is no longer in business. Well, <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm keeping that one for myself. <laughs> but it, there were several other burger places that I could name. There's Zippy's, Burger Addict, Burger Town, Shake and Go, Herfie's, Pick Quick. I think the one that gets a lot of notoriety from outside Seattle is Dick's Drive-In, which there's, uh, there must be like half a dozen locations around Seattle. It's sort of like a fast food burger place. They have reasonably good shakes and fries and, and burgers, but they're not like gourmet in it. Anyway, yeah, that was most of my food. Bizarro has really good Italian. It's the Bizarro Italian Cafe. Uh, Gian Noodles in the University District is really good. There was a surprisingly good Chicago-style pizza place that I can't remember the name of, but I'll put it in the text when I write it up. Does Seattle have some bizarre variant of pizza that they call their own? Uh, no. Oh, but I should say that if you go to Seattle, there are lots of good seafood places, but most of the places that people will recommend to you are like secretly just chains. Like Ivar's is actually just a chain. They're okay. And, you know, if you're into like chowder or oysters or whatever, go for it. But my preference overall, I think, is Taylor Shellfish. There's also like the Walrus and the Carpenter in Ballard that has really good oysters. I would definitely, if you're going to Seattle, don't miss oysters. Just eat as many of them as you can. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're boogers of the sea. You cannot go wrong.
guys want to talk about invert and invent at all? No. Do I? I don't know. Invert was the card that got Day Zero Errata to add until end of turn. Uh, I am now bending my head so I can read this on my monitor. It's Taco Neck. Yes. It's good. You have to have Taco Neck. You know, I was wondering about that when I read it, <laughs> because that seemed like a really weird... It obviously reads permanent, and then, but it's on an instant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is an unknown. Like, there are definitely effects in Magic that exist like that, but it seems strange. Yeah, it's should have been errata to create an emblem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a, I mean, it's a, it's a miss, you know. It's the card. I, I feel like there are cards in every set that you just come to loathe. I didn't know it until, you know, this card was previewed, but. That's it. That's the card that I hate in this set because it ruined what was going to be a perfect set. Are you particular to this one? Because you said that every set has its mistakes. Are you particular to this one because you were lead designer on, on this set? Because it was my mistake? Okay, yeah. yeah. I was wondering yeah. if if there were other ones that sort of slipped through, but since it's in other sets that you feel strongly about, but ultimately it's someone else's problem because they... they well, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure that other editors have misses on their own that they feel badly about, but this one was, you know, this one hit close to home. Oh well. How'd you miss it, Nat? I don't know. It, it was a thing that uh, the the card changed kind of late, and as a result, the until end of turn got dropped off of it. I, a lot of people looked at this card, tried to interpret the switch the power and toughness of each of up to two target creatures. And thought that was complex enough. And that's also what I was wondering about because I feel like it's yeah. sort of a rules question waiting to happen. Like, are you switching the two creatures' power and toughnesses between the two creatures? Yeah, it's it's within each one. You switch yeah. its power. And yeah, power. it has to be because it's up to right. two. So switching right. one. The would whole, not make the any whole sense. idea with this card is that it kills walls. Like, there's there's kind of a <laughs> a small wall theme in this set, and this is supposed to you know make your zero five wall of five zero wall and kill it so yeah it's like a twisted image right yeah clearly it doesn't do that i mean it does do that but it does it forever it doesn't draw a card <laughs> yeah I, I was kind of hoping and dreading that someone would ask that question like so what happened on invert the answer is nothing <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like whoops i don't know like, <laughs> i will say that as an editor uh wizards is surprising well not surprisingly, just appreciably realistic about these kinds of errors. There's there's a lot that goes into a set. And sure. It's it's really, really hard to be perfect every time. And Wizards has a really good track record of being perfect every time. And, you know, every once in a while it fails. <laughs> On the other hand, at some point, Lich got printed. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what happened there. That was early on. Nobody knows. <laughs> so I cast this and I'm dead. <laughs> cool. Ultimately, uh, it was a it was just an absolute pleasure to work on this set, and I'm really pleased with how it came out. And everyone who worked on it, I think, did a great job of putting it together. Like it was it was a lot of fun to work on. Was this the only set that you were lead editor for, or will we have another one of these further down the line in a sneaky yet to be revealed set? Oh, there may be a sneaky yet to be revealed set that I am the lead editor on. Oh my. Overall, uh, there were a few smaller things that I was the editor on, a couple of master sets. I was the lead editor on A25 and Iconic Masters, I think. And then I did the creative editing on Rivals of Ixlan. Del Loggle and I sort of split that one up. She did the, the actual rules templating and 
I pretty much did the creative editing along with James Wyatt, the creative lead. When you're working on a set like Iconic Masters, is the overall workload there lighter because it is straight reprints? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, it, a lot of it is just making sure that any changes that have happened to either like overall templating oh, or yeah. to a particular card get picked up. So if a wording changes or something like that, I mean, like when we removed mana pool from card text like you make sure that that gets picked up and normally it does because that all goes into oracle and is picked up from there but yeah it's it's a lot easier and you you're definitely you can check against previous printings to make sure that things look the same and are going to still look good in their setting probably a interesting a lot of pressure right because people have such high expectations of like oh i want you to reprint these 10 cards and then you guys have to go back and balance that uh you know does this make sense like are we making a thousand dollar box set here like (laughs) are people going to get mad that's not really i guess it's not really how master sets get put together i mean obviously there's how do those get put together like who's making the decisions there because that's that doesn't go through the same like creative and vision design system. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. I mean, a lot of that is just going through a... There there are specific cards that we want to reprint, but ultimately putting together a master set is more about putting together a fun, limited experience. So, like, you know, you start with these sort of desires of what cards want to be in there, and then uh, usually there's a play design team that's looking at this and saying, okay, well, we want to make sure that there's things for each color pair to do or, you know, within each color to do. Um, we want these six or seven or eight different archetypes to sort of be draftable and playable and fun. What's going to be in there for a person who likes to play control decks? Like, is there a blink deck or is there a walls deck or, you know, is there just some good counter spells or a mill deck or something like that? And what's going to be in here for someone who wants to cast giant creatures? Like, do we have an angel deck or a dragon deck or something like that. Whoever you are as a player, you can sort of sink your teeth into and get into. And that's actually, it's sort of frustrating for me watching people open boxes of master sets just to open them. Like, you know, um, doing a, a box opening on Twitch or whatever and just going through it. And it's like, that is not how you enjoy this. Like, <laughs> you're, you're going to open this, get exactly the value you expect, and then complain because you didn't have any fun. It's like, well, you should have drafted this set where you would enjoy the actual work that we put into it. Mm-hmm. A little thing that I learned working at Wizards is that people do lots of different things in Magic. That You don't get to choose how people experience your art? Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like people do their thing, and I'm I'm glad they do it. It's enjoy magic how you like mtg underground it's happened again you've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to serious vintage i'm jeff mose i'm nat mose i'm josh chapel and we hope you'll join us next time for more serious vintage take a little trip take a little trip I do want to ask one more question, though, because someone has a very keen interest in knowing when we're going to get an Angel Planeswalker. Oh, I don't know.